I invite you to take your Bibles now and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. And the words to which I would call your attention this evening are found in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 18, as we continue thinking about the decree of God. Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 6. This is the Word of God. It is holy, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient in all that it says. Let's give attention to it now. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring be named, shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. But this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, who has, mercy, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Um, let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Our Father, we bless you. What a gift you have given us in this word. And through even some of the darkest times, uh, perhaps that the world has known, you caused it to be preserved. And you have given it to us, O oh Lord, as a gift. It reminds us every day, O oh Lord, that you are holy. You are a just God. You are good merciful, gracious, and sovereign. And tonight, O oh Father, we pray and ask that you would bless us as we think about what your word has to say. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Have you ever had to wait on medical tests, lab testing, some kind of uh, waiting on some kind of result? Um, you know how agonizing that waiting can be, don't you? You have to schedule the test one day and then you schedule another time to go in, maybe a week or a couple of weeks later, so that you can get the results read by a specialist. And during that in-between time, what happens? Well, the anxiety builds up, doesn't it? There's a worry, nervousness. What, what are the tests going to say? Um, what, this is an example of what we might call contingent knowledge. Uh, we can only know what we know. And and we don't know what we don't know. And you and I don't know things until after they happen, do we? And sometimes even then we have to take time to analyze those results to figure out what really happened. Who actually won the race? 
What did those test results really say? It's interesting how often we even surprise ourselves, isn't it? You think that if a certain event happens, you'll respond in a certain way. Then that certain thing happens and your response is completely different than what you thought that you would do. I think often of the men who responded after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and how many of those men, maybe, found out that they were actually courageous men when they never anticipated what they would have done in that moment. I'll bet some who volunteered found a courage that they didn't know they had. It's important to distinguish now how God knows things from the way that you and I know things. We learn things as we go along. And even as we learn them, we find that we don't know them perfectly. So that even as you look back maybe on a scrapbook picture and and reflect on something that happened, an event that took place, new thoughts will come to mind. You might learn new things about an old event. Our knowledge then is finite and contingent. But God's knowledge is not contingent. In other words, he doesn't have to wait for events to happen in order to know what will take place. We could say that he knows everything all at once. That's hard to fathom, isn't it? Accurately, I think it's better to say that is impossible to fathom. That God would know all things all at once. But tonight, we're going to take it even a little bit further. And we're going to say, not only does God know perfectly what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen, we're also going to see from Scripture that God knows everything that could have happened and didn't. He knows every detail of not only what does happen, but what could have happened. And I want to read to you just this is paragraph 2 of Westminster Confession, chapter 3. It says this, Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet He has not decreed anything. Listen now, very carefully. He has not decreed anything because He foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. And so I want to take that and boil it down in just one sentence here. This is what we're going to see tonight. God knows what will happen because God decrees what will happen. God knows what will happen because He has ordained what will happen. And I'm going to show you why that's a very important distinction. Let's notice, first of all, that God knows all things, all possibilities. Turn over with me to Acts chapter 15 and verse 18. Remember that in Acts chapter 15, uh, the apostles had gathered with the elders of the church, some of the appointed elders, and this is a a very important uh, uh, chapter for church government. But we want to see just how uh, they make a declaration here. We're going to read Acts chapter 15 beginning in verse 15, as they are, they've come to a conclusion here, and now they are citing the Scriptures upon which their conclusion is based. And with, the, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. 
I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. So God is proclaiming what's going to happen after the exile and the judgment against Israel. He's going to restore the tent of David. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, listen, who makes these things, verse 18, known from of old. Now that's obviously competing with the shortest verse in the Bible, but it doesn't beat Jesus wept. Verse 18, known from of old. God makes these things known from of old. And so all that the Apostle Peter is saying there is that God declares what the future will be. And you see what he's saying in this context is God has already said that the Gentiles are included in his plan of salvation. They will be included in his covenant people. And when did the Lord make these things known? from of old. And all that Peter is pointing out in this context, he's saying, look guys, we should include the Gentiles because this has always been God's plan. And notice when he declared it, way before it ever happened. God declares the future. So he must know the future if he can declare it. But the way that God knows the future is something that's very unique. And I want you to turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 23 as we look at the life of David. And the next thing that we'll notice is that God knows the future because he can declare it, but he also knows the possible. He also knows the possible. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 11 and 12. An interesting statement here. David is asking the Lord for counsel, and he says in verse 11, 1 Samuel 23, 11, will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? In other words, are they going to betray me into the hand of Saul? This is David's prayer. O Lord, I'm sorry, will Saul come down as your servant has heard. O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Calah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. So notice what happens here. David is asking the Lord to tell him what will happen if he does a certain thing. And the Lord says to him, yes, David, if you go down, the sons of Calah will betray you into the hands of Saul. So what does David do? Well, he goes the other direction. God is declaring to David not what does happen per se, but what could happen if he did a certain thing. And I want you to notice how carefully this is recorded for you in Scripture to confirm the word of the Lord. Now skip down and look at verse 20. Let's start in verse 19. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. So even though they never actually had the opportunity to betray David, God tells David what would have happened 
if that circumstance had been fulfilled. And so God, not only can God declare the future, but His knowledge is so infinite of everything that could take place that He can tell us what would happen, even though it never actually does. God knows the possible. God knows the contingent. Turn over to Matthew chapter 11, verses 21 and 23. You and I, we look back into the future. I'm sorry. We, we look back into the past, and, and sometimes there are what ifs in our minds. What if I had done this? What if I had taken this road? Or can you imagine if we'd have gone this way, or if we'd have just been a second sooner or a second later in in our journey, what would have happened? We would have been in this intersection at that moment. And we don't know what would have happened. But God does. And I want you to notice that this is declared by the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. Notice what He says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, what would they have done? they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Skip down to verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now, Jesus is not conjecturing here. He's not spitballing. He's not saying... You know, I think, based on my knowledge of Sodom, based on my knowledge of Tyre, based on my knowledge of these cities, if these works had been done, there's a good chance. He doesn't say that. There's a good chance they would have repented. No, Jesus says with the assurance, the definiteness of the knowledge of God that if these mighty works had been done in those cities, they would have repented. It is certain. From the mouth and mind of the infinite. You and I, like I said, we we occasionally reminisce about the past and we wonder what would have taken place, but God does not wonder. He knows exactly what would happen upon every single condition. You think um, we're in hurricane season now and and certainly probably within a a few months we're going to get a spaghetti model and you know what this looks like. It's every possible idea of where the storm could go and you've got some who see it pushing into the west and some the storm will curve out into the east upon these conditions. Well, God knows upon every condition what would happen, what direction the storm would go. Every single contingency. This is the mind of your great and sovereign God. Think about what Jesus is saying in Matthew 11, 21 and 23. If these mighty works had been done, they would have repented. If these mighty works had been done in Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom, they would have repented. Now, what is he saying to these people? You have them, and you won't repent. Woe to you. This illustrates that God not only knows what will happen, he knows what could happen, in the words of the confession, upon all supposed conditions. In other words, if you were to say, Lord, what if this happened? What if I took this direction? Or what if I made this decision? He could tell you with infinite wisdom every single thing that would fall out from that decision. Every single thing. 
One of the questions that you ought to ask after you realize the extent of God's knowledge is how can he know all things so perfectly well? How can the knowledge of God be that precise and perfect? I I can't even imagine. There's no possible way that the finite mind that we have um, can conceive of the knowledge of God in this way. A possible answer is, well, God sees the future. God sees the future. And so, if he had a 900 number, you could call him up. And for those who don't know what a 900 number is, you used to be able to get on the phone and dial a 900 number and you would be charged for that call. You might call him up and say, Lord, can you predict my future? Kind of like looking into a magic eight ball, but God obviously has an infinite mind. He sees the future. And so in some sense then, this answer describes God as having a sort of a psychic ability. He sees what will happen before it happens. But we might pose pose a follow-up question this way. Well, is the future open or closed? In other words, all of those contingencies that we can think of, is it possible for any of them to happen? For instance, imagine that tomorrow you go for ice cream at Baskin Robbins. Well, they have 31 flavors. 31 flavors. All of these options for you to choose one, if they have them all in stock, mind you. So you have 31 possibilities, and then if you start to combine flavors the exponent, exponential power is virtually infinite. Does God know what you will choose? Yes. Is it possible for you to choose any of those 31 flavors? Yes. How can God know what you will choose? If the future is open and there's a possibility that you will choose any of them, then God cannot know it. This is very important to understand. If the future is open and that choice is not determined, then God cannot know it. He is as limited in his understanding of the future as you and I are. Now he can look back perhaps and analyze it perfectly. But if the future is open, God cannot know it. The reason that he knows what you will choose at Baskin Robin is because he has predestined it. He has determined beforehand what will come to pass on every condition. This is why God can know it. And this is so important. We're going to make this practical. Because some imagine that the opposite is true. Some think of God's decree in this way. That He looks into the future, He sees what will happen, and then He decrees that thing to be His will. That's how some people imagine it. But what the Scriptures teach us is that this idea actually denies the biblical teaching on God's knowledge and decree. Let's look at that together in our second point. That God knows all things, all possibilities, all contingencies, all at once. But we also need to conclude, this is the conclusion of the Westminster Confession. They're very precise here. The reason that God knows is because He decrees all that comes to pass. God knows 
because he decrees. The second point is important, especially with reference to God's plan of redemption, his plan of salvation. Some of our friends, when they read the doctrine of election or they think about the doctrine of election, they state it this way. They'll say, well, I believe in election, and here's how I believe in it. I believe that God looks into into the future and He sees every man, woman, and child that will say yes to the free offer of the Gospel and everyone who says yes become His elect. Everyone who says yes to Christ becomes His elect. In other words, God chooses those whom He knows will accept the Gospel. So what God knows, do you see, becomes His decree. But is that what the confession is teaching? No. The confession says He decrees what the future is and therefore He knows it perfectly. The future is, in other words, closed, not open. And this is very important for us to understand. The the Westminster Confession completely denies the conclusion that God knows and therefore He decrees. To say that God chooses those who will accept the gospel makes Him a psychic deity, not a sovereign one. If our friends are right, then man is sovereign, not God. So to challenge the idea that God is merely psychic, we look to Romans chapter 9. Now I remember um, the first time that I read Romans chapter 9. And it is it's life-changing. It's worldview-changing. I remember the first time that I read it to some uh, men that I was serving with. And they said, why have I never read this before? Why have I never seen this in this light before? So let's go now to Romans chapter 9 as we think about the relationship between God's decree, His ordination, and His knowledge. And the Westminster Confession draws our attention to two two young men. One by the name of Jacob and the other by the name of Esau. Paul illustrates God's sovereignty in two ways. First, he says that although Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, he says specifically only one of those sons was the son of promise in Romans chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. Only one of those sons was the son of promise. God chose one and rejected the other. Second, although Isaac had two sons, Twins by the same mother in this case. Only one was the son of promise. Look at uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. God said to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, one of the possible conclusions as we read this text, as you look at it and you're trying to reconcile within yourself, what, what does Paul actually mean? Some of us will read that passage and we say, okay, I understand what this means. God saw into the future that Esau would be a wicked man. And he saw into the future that Jacob would be a man who walks with the Lord. 
Therefore he said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that's one way to think about it. But notice that in verses 10 and 11, Paul specifically denies this conclusion. He's anticipating you, as our General Assembly moderator might say. Look at verses 10 and 11. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, they are in utero, in the womb, fighting with one another there, although they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad. You see, here's what Paul is saying. God is not considering any of these things. The boys hadn't been born yet. They had done nothing good or bad yet. And notice what he says, specifically denying the idea that God is looking into time to see what they would do. He goes on, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. This is the biblical doctrine of election. This is the decree of God. Why did He say, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated? So that His purpose of election might stand. Well, well surely, surely it has to do with one of them was going to be faithful and the other not. And, and that's the basis. No, Paul says, not with regard to works. God's purpose, which is election, must continue, he says. That is, remain. It must abide. Paul, Paul is responding here to the man who says, God elects those whom he knows will respond to the gospel. And he's saying, that's not how it works. God does not decree what He knows. He knows what He decrees. The decree is first. His purpose comes first. So His choice of Jacob over Esau has nothing to do with what God foresaw that one would do and the other wouldn't. In fact, if you read the entire story, you can only make that conclusion. Because it would be fair to say that Jacob was a worse man than Esau. God chose because it was his choice. Can you imagine if God decreed the devil's defeat simply because he foresaw that Jesus would successfully rise from the dead? We can't say this about any of, uh, of the other decrees that God has made either. If something affects God, then that thing is sovereign, not God. He is not sovereign if He is affected by external pressures. If that thing is sovereign then that thing deserves our worship and God does not. In fact, that thing is the true God. God knows what will happen because God decrees what will happen upon any condition. 
Now go back to that time that you were waiting on those medical tests. You remember? How does God's decree comfort you in that moment? You find comfort knowing that although the future is uncertain to you, it isn't to God. You don't find rest in a test result. You find rest knowing that the test result is from God, whatever it is. Your life, beloved, is not left to chance. Not one aspect of it. The path before you is dark and dim and shady and you can't see it clearly. But know that you are only walking in the path that God has established for your life. Every step that you will take is decreed by Him. You are not left to chance. Your life is directed by an almighty and a loving Father. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, Lord, truly, as we consider these things, we can, can conclude with the Apostle Paul from Romans, Romans chapter 11. Who can understand these things? These things are too wonderful for us. But Father, they are in Scripture, and we know that you've given them to us as your children so that we might find comfort in them. And you've directed us, O Lord, not to find comfort in the circumstances of our lives, not that we have have, uh, um, adequately secured ourselves like Jericho, not that we set up uh, enough defenses for ourselves. This is idolatry. Father, our hope is in the Lord. So that we might say with the Apostle, I have learned in whatever circumstance I am to be content. Why? Because, Father, you are sovereign over every aspect of our lives. And we praise you, O Lord, for this great assurance. In Christ's name, amen.